0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Jeffrey Rosen wrote a book about Louis Brandeis, an associate justice of the Supreme Court. He served in the early 20th century and was the first Jewish justice.
1: Brandeis thought that all of us have an obligation, not just at Aspen, but in all of our leisure time, not to watch cat videos, but to educate ourselves so that we do not fall prey to demagogues or false claims, but can make informed choices about democracy.
0: Rosen is president of the National Constitution Center, and his book, Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet, was released this year. Today's episode is about Brandeis. He was known as the greatest critic of big business and big government since Thomas Jefferson. Aspen Ideas to Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values based leadership and the exchange of ideas. In a talk called, The Curse of Bigness, Why Louis Brandeis Matters, Rosen sits down with Jeffrey Goldberg. Goldberg is editor-in-chief at The Atlantic. Why is Brandeis still relevant today? He's widely considered to be one of the most influential Supreme Court justices of the 20th century, and his spirited defense of privacy, free speech, and technology are surprisingly pertinent in modern America. Here's Rosen and Goldberg.
2: Welcome to this session on Louis Brandeis. Uh, I'm Jeff Goldberg. This is Jeff Rosen. We have other Jewish Jeffs coming later. <laughs> uh, we're, we're doing a panel on all Jewish Jeffs.
1: Tubin is on his way.
2: Tubin, Jeffrey Tubin is on his way. Yes. Jeffrey Stone is on his way. He's Jewish. Right? He's very Jewish. He's very yeah. Jewish, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we have a panel of Jews and then very Jewish Jews. That's uh, right before, not before, right before Shabbat. Um, <laughs> So uh, you all know Jeff Rosen. I don't have to really introduce him. He's uh, in charge of the Constitution. I think, is that the title? Yes, the, the Charge of the Constitution. <laughs> it. it's a great... Someone's tough on The U.S. Constitution Center it. in Philadelphia, which is a great place and you should all go. Um, he is, in all seriousness, not only our cutest constitutional scholar, he's also <laughs> one of our most important constitutional scholars. I think that's fair to say.
1: You're our most beautiful Jewish scholar.
2: Thank you very much. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and uh, this book is fantastic by the way, and it's about a, a figure of seminal importance in American history uh, and Jewish history. We're going to get to both of these things uh, today. Um, I, I'm going I'm to let Jeff talk for a, a few minutes about, uh, about th- some of the biographical details just so we set the stage uh, uh, of Brandeis's life, um, talk about why he wrote the book and why Brandeis matters so much, and then we're going to get into a conversation about why he matters, and there's going to be plenty of time for a Q&A. I just want to uh, say, I mean, we're both... Uh, is there is there a word Brandeisian? Yes, there is a word. Yes, now there's a word Brandeisian. We're both we're both pretty ardent Brandeisians um, in the in the, in the in the sense that well I'll tell you a very quick story. It's not a very satisfying ending for me, but uh, I, I was interviewing Jack Lew, the Treasury Secretary, a few weeks ago That's on great. stage, and um, and I asked him uh, this is right after the the Tubman decision, and I asked him if you could put one Jew on the money. Which would who would it be? Uh, and being Jack Lewin, and being the Treasury Secretary, he demurred. I thought the an- I, I, I knew that the answer was, and the answer is Brandeis. A lot of people in the audience later suggested Einstein. There were other other important uh, Jews. Spielberg, somebody said. Um, <laughs> Pr- Proust. What?
1: Proust. Kafka. Proust.
2: Kruszkowski, yeah, American Jews, American. Focus on the American. Um, the euro is breaking up. It'll eventually be Walter Isaacson, obviously, but um, uh, but I thought I, 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 it was always clear in my mind that Brandeis uh, will be the first Jew on our money. Um, it will be a small bill because he's opposed to bigness, obviously. Um, but um, but Jeff, why don't you do um, why don't you do just a few minutes uh, of, of setting the stage? uh who he was his career and and why you thought he mattered enough to to warrant doing this book and then we'll jump into some of the areas in which he's especially relevant
1: thank you so much jeff thank you for doing this thank you for sharing this passion for brandeis who matters so much today and thank you all for coming what a thrill to see you all to learn about this great man who can tell us more than anyone else in the 20th century about The curse of bigness in business and government about privacy and free speech in an age of new technologies and about zionism i feel like i hit the jackpot when i was assigned this topic i knew a bit about brandeis but there's this wonderful series the yale jewish live series supported by leon black which uh commissioned short interpretive biographies uh and asked you to write them really fast. So uh, I got Brandeis and I just was set on fire by his relevance. He is my hero and my goal. Was
2: he your hero before you started this? I,
1: I liked him. I read him in law school. I knew about his free speech opinions, but I didn't realize just how transformatively important he was. I concluded he's the greatest constitutional philosopher since Jefferson. And I know Jefferson's out of fashion now. My timing is terrible because everyone is a Hamiltonian, and Jefferson has all the bad songs. But one of the goals of this is to resurrect a Jeffersonian tradition from Jefferson to Jackson to Harry Truman to FDR, which believes that only in small-scale communities and small-scale businesses can people master the facts that are necessary for personal and uh, political self-government. So where did this great man come from? He's born in 1856 in Louisville, Kentucky. His parents had fled the revolutions of 1848 in Europe. They came from Prague. They were known as the pilgrims of 1848. And Brandeis later said that not since 48 have the spirit of liberty burned so passionately. So he imbues from his father this ardent uh, love for liberty. Uh, Adolf Brandeis, his father, is a grain merchant. Uh, a farmer uh, and uh, has a series of small businesses which he manages effectively. He's wiped out in uh, a panic in the 1890s and takes the, the family to Europe for the first time and Brandeis goes to Germany and he learns about the importance of facts and he says this is the first time that I realized that I could change my mind after reflecting about facts and that leads him later to develop the Brandeis brief which he calls what every fool knows but is a collection of empirical evidence designed to persuade judges to rule on the basis of facts. I sort of buried the lead which is that he was born in 1856, and he remembered at the age of five and a half hearing gunshots after the second battle of Bull Run. His mother was an abolitionist uh, and brought food to the Union troops. I studied in college with David Reisman, the great sociologist who was one of Brandeis's last law clerks, and I quote his letters in the book. And it's remarkable to me that the entire scope of American history, from someone who heard shot at the Civil War uh, to someone who uh, clerked with him, Uh, you know, all could be contained within that span of time. So he uh, goes to Harvard Law School, he gets the the highest grades in the history of the school, they still haven't been surpassed, and he becomes, in Boston, the people's lawyer, uh, famous for crusading against corruption of uh, railroads and gas companies, and most importantly of all, J.P. Morgan. Uh, who he accuses of taking reckless risks with what he unforgettably calls other people's money. He predicts the crash of 1929 and war- warns that when greedy Morgan bankers take uh, gambles on complicated financial instruments, which are too uh, elaborate for anyone to understand their value, then crashes will result. <laughs> Thank goodness we learned if that you had lesson. you this book in 2006. <laughs> Absolutely. As, as Tom Lehrer Tom said, once all the Germans were warlike and mean, uh, but that couldn't happen again. We taught them a lesson in 1918, and right. that they've hardly right. bothered us since right. then. Right. It was the same, the same thing. So, uh, and then he's off and running. He's nominated to the court in uh, 1916, um, exactly 100 years ago on June 1st, uh, waits 125 days for a confirmation hearing. Uh, on, J- on July 19th, Merrick Garland will surpass that record, but so far no one has surpassed it. Uh, and there's some anti-Semitism in the hearings, but most of the uh, opposition is based on his opposition to Morgan and the Banks. Uh, and, but ultimately, he's confirmed and goes on to serve on the court from 1916 until 1939, uh, where he becomes one of the greatest justices of the century.
0: It's Aspen Ideas to go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today's episode features constitutional scholar Jeffrey Rosen and Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic. Rosen wrote Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet. Brandeis was a Supreme Court justice in the early 20th century. Here's Goldberg.
2: So I want to break this down into maybe three or four separate subjects we can run through. There, he's, he's, he's a revolutionary on issues of privacy. He's a revolutionary... Profit-like person on issues uh, uh, of free speech, the Zionism. We're going to talk. We're going to do a section on Israel. I want to talk about bigness, the curse of, of bigness. And, and it was. It, it struck me when I was reading this uh, the first time through that if Brandeis were to come back to life today, he'd be very, very, very unhappy with a lot of what's going on. If he came back to Aspen, his head would be spinning, by the way. (laughs) Uh, No, 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 it's interesting, because he was an outdoorsman, so he would like the trails, but he wouldn't like the Coke building. You know what I mean? No, Uh, no, no. no.
1: He'd like Coke. He would not like door Hoosier or the tent. He would not like... Oh, he would like a small building. small seminar rooms would be fine. It's important what he would think
2: about Aspen. Aspen could flip him out. I think we can both agree on that.
1: You know, actually, he would like the emphasis on self-education, which mattered a lot. No, that's actually true. That's why
2: this would have his head spinning. A -A 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 lot in America would... Would uh, would uh, really trouble him. Uh, I, we were talking before, and I was joking that that one of the places where he would probably be unhappiest would be in the webcam section of a Walmart. Uh, <laughs> because uh, one of the things he loathed was was corporate hugeness, mon- uh, monopolization. Uh, it, it was you could describe this obviously in detail, and I want you to in a second. And the other was the invasion of privacy. I mean, he is, and maybe let's start with privacy. I'm asking you to do something difficult because the person—actually, it's easy because he's dead. He won't know. But I want you to sort of tell us what he thought about privacy and what he would think about the state of privacy in America today. And we'll walk, walk through these issues.
1: It's great to channel him on privacy. Whenever I have a hard constitutional question, I ask, WWBD, what would Brandeis do? So let me try to channel him like, uh, on privacy. So what's so riveting about him on privacy is that he changes his mind. In 1890, he writes the most famous article ever written on the right to privacy in the Harvard Law Review, where he objects to these new technologies, the instant camera and the tabloid press, which are guaranteeing that what used to be whispered from the closets is now shouted from the rooftops. And basically, he's worried about salacious gossip about celebrities, his law partner, Samuel Warren, Uh, and proposes an entirely new cause of action called the Brandeis torts, which sounds like a yummy dessert, but became a kind of unsatisfying series of dignitary offenses. Basically, they allow celebrities to sue the press when it publishes truthful but embarrassing information. And then, right after he publishes it, he writes to his wife, I reread it, I don't think it's as good as I thought. Uh, I'm now more interested in transparency, and he coins the idea that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And he thinks and he and muses his, the original term. His, his term. His he original. has an incredible gift for aphorism. The curse, the curse of bigness, other people's money, sunlight is the best disinfectant. He's speaking directly to us. His prose is modern and arresting and crisp, and that's a source of his incredible power. So the big place where he transforms the law of privacy and changes his mind is a case in 1927 involving wiretapping and it's prohibition and the government is enforcing prohibition by putting wiretaps under the sidewalk leading up to the office of a suspected bootlegger and they eavesdrop on him and they convict him for bootlegging. He objects that there was no warrant and the court in this very wooden originalist opinion by Chief Justice William Howard Taft, who was Brandeis's one-time nemesis, says, no trespass, no violation of the Fourth Amendment. The framers said you had to physically trespass on someone's home to violate the Constitution. Here it was outside. It was a public sidewalk. Brandeis writes this visionary dissenting opinion, and it's thrilling to read. He has in his desk drawer this clipping describing a new technology television. It's 1927 but he misunderstands television. He thinks it's a two-way technology where people can see each other through both sides well, of the webcam. Well, he didn't
2: misunderstand it. He was just too early. He, <laughs>
1: he, he anticipates Skype.
2: Right, he, he's a right. prophet.
1: This is why it's called American Prophet. He right. actually foresees the future. And in this incredible opinion, I'm, I'm going to have to, I don't know what page it's on. I, I, can, I can do the, the free speech decision by heart. I can't do the privacy the one. Basically, he says, uh, uh, the progress of science is not likely to stop with wiretapping discovery and invention may soon make it possible that what used to be whispered in the closets is now exhorted by the rack then he says ways may someday be developed by which it's possible without physically intruding in desk drawers to extract secret papers and introduce them in court a far smaller intrusion was considered a kind of violation that sparked the american revolution we have to translate the values of the framers so they protect the same amount of privacy in the 20th century as they protected in the 21st. Larry Lessig I think is here in the audience and his notion of the need to translate the Constitution is a Brandeisian notion. So what Brandeis does in this beautiful opinion is comes to conclude that far from clashing, free speech and privacy reinforce each other. Rather than championing a dignitary right of celebrities to sue the press for publishing truthful but embarrassing information he says when the government surveils us 24 7 with webcams or drones or by tracking our cell phones it threatens the anonymity on which political dissent, eccentricity, and individuality depends. So, it's an would, amazing he, would he
2: tolerate but dislike TMZ and that style of journalism today? No, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's I'm, an important on question. On what line would it be too much for him to bear?
1: Well, the original Brandeis said the problem with TMZ and gossip is that it crowds out the space in the public imagination available for matters of public discourse. He's very keen. This is this is very important for all of us. He thinks that citizens have an obligation to master facts so that they can engage in deliberation about serious matters. And when when we watch cat videos or CMV or the tabloids of his day, he thinks this lowers the public conversation because it's so riveting, pruriently interesting, and makes matters of public discussion impossible. So I think he wouldn't have liked it. But I do think that the mature Brandeis would have concluded that public figures should not be able to sue the press for truthful and embarrassing information. And therefore, I channel him on this new right that the European Union has proposed, the right to be forgotten, which allows anyone to sue Google in Europe if they publish an item that's truthful but embarrassing. And the European Union is imposing fines on Google of up to $2 million per incident. And Brandeis, yeah. I think, would have opposed the right to be forgotten because right. he concluded that fr- free expression was more important than dignity. And if
2: I were in the European Union, I would leave it. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, uh, uh, well, you, you, you know, Brandeis,
1: Brandeis on Brexit, I shouldn't freelance Brandeis here. Brandeis on Brexit. it's like he, the ultimate
2: Aspen Ideas panel <laughs> right, there, right there. Brandeis on Zika and Brexit. Uh, yeah.
1: For Zika against Brexit. No, he, does, he doesn't like bigness, you know. I don't know. Yeah, it's, yeah, I don't think he would
2: like the EU. Th- yeah. Well, no, but that, that's one of the one of the reasons, by the way, that... that uh, he 's not sometimes a hero to liberals in America is that he had this uh, belief in smallness and in the and in the native intelligence of the states, the states as laboratories of democracy he wasn 't for uh, he, he was obviously for the union, but he was for autonomy of states is that i mean that 's a fair uh, understanding of why some people on the left today don 't hold him as a hero
1: it 's exactly right on the left critics of corporate bigness don 't share a similar suspicion of Federal bigness, that's the Sanders uh, position, and similarly on the right, critics of big government don't always share the same suspicion of big business. Brandeis, like Jefferson, was suspicious of bigness in both business and government. And the book begins with this dramatic scene where he summons to his austere apartment in, on California Street in Washington these two FDR advisors and says, unless President Roosevelt stops this business of centralization, we're going to strike down the New Deal. And he acts like a prophet and he paces up and down against the, around the room and he invokes the Greeks and Euripides and basically says, you better warn the president. This could never happen today. Imagine Justice uh, Kagan, you know, summoning uh, Valerie Jarrett to the White House and saying Roberts is going to strike down the the Obamacare mandate. But the prophet... Imagine the
2: Attorney General going on an ex-president's (laughs) plane and talking about... Speaking with him. It's not conceivable. I I can't even imagine. Not in America. Uh, Who could 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 imagine such a thing?
1: He makes good on his threat. He strikes down the New Deal on this Black Monday in 1935. And FDR rebuked changes his tune and Arthur Schlesinger has this great line, the first New Deal breathed the spirit of Theodore Roosevelt and Herbert Crowley in the New Nationalism, the second New Deal of Woodrow Wilson and Louis Brandeis, and basically the second New Dealers, rather than trying to create these big centralized regulatory agencies, want to break up the banks, and also create laws like Glass-Siegel, which separate commercial from investment banking and kept financial stability until they were
2: repealed wanna, in the I wanna, 90s. I want to come back to bigness in a second, but you opened up another interesting vein when you talked about an educated populace. Uh, his, and when, when you read Brandeis and other biographies and this, you, 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 there, there's a naivete to me at least, in, in, in his in his view that if the American people left to their own devices and given some leisure time, given some time to think, will pursue the facts and will make decisions as informed members, as informed citizens of a democracy. One of the reasons I think Brandeis might have a difficult time In this particular moment in american history is that we're moving to fact-free presidential elections is that i mean is, is no no i i mean i i don't want to turn this into a caricature of what would brandeis think but what the hell what would brandeis think of the way in which donald trump is running his campaign i mean because it runs it flies in the face of his belief that that the people will do the right thing if provided with access to information uh, and the time to absorb the information. And we're, We're talking about a different kind of thing right now.
1: Well, we'll see. But whenever I despair about American democracy, I remember that Brandeis is fundamentally optimistic that given time and the opportunity to amass the facts, at least some citizens and ultimately enough citizens will educate themselves to preserve democracy. Ladies and gentlemen, I got my start uh, in this wonderful constitutional enterprise here at Aspen. Laura Lauder is here. She brought me here as a Socrates moderator many years ago. And the idea of sitting around a table and people setting aside time to master facts, to deliberate face-to-face, and to educate themselves is a very beautiful idea, and it's a very Brandeisian idea. And Brandeis thought that all of us have an obligation, not just at Aspen, but in all of our leisure time, not to watch cat videos, but to educate ourselves so that we do not fall prey to demagogues or false claims, but can make informed choices about democracy.
0: You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's episode features a conversation about Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis. Jeffrey Rosen is President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and Jeffrey Goldberg is Editor-in-Chief of The Atlantic. Their discussion took place at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June of 2016.
1: He was so, he's, he has two heroes, Jefferson and fifth century Athens. And his favorite book is The Greek Polis by Alfred Zimmern, a great Zionist. And he loves the fact that in Athens, the word for leisure was a scoli, which means unemployment. You're supposed to use your hours of unemployment not surfing the internet, but reading Tolstoy and industrial reports. And he's so moved by these Jewish garment workers in 1910 who used their spare time to do just that and to educate themselves about the facts. So gosh, God only knows what's going to happen in this election, but Brandeis, uh, you know, I, 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 we have to maintain his optimism. And whatever The other citizens do. All of us in this room have an opportunity to resist the temptation to squander our time surfing down internet holes, which I'd like to do as much as anyone else, and just focus on using our leisure, our precious leisure time, to read and think more, eat and drink less, and to prepare ourselves for the duties of citizenship.
2: I saw a fantastic YouTube video, by the way, of, of dog, <laughs> dog, dogs reading Supreme Court decisions. You ever seen I saw, that? saw uh, the Oliver, yeah, the John Oliver. Yeah, it was yeah, actually great. Yeah, uh, okay, was, so yeah. I'm wrong about. It. Yeah, you no, can no, watch no. dog some, videos. Some, not Sometimes cat videos. you can combine. Yeah, that's the a two. good idea. That was very but, but, clever, actually. But uh, yeah, but, but stay stay on bigness, because as influential, look, one of the arguments of of your book is obviously that that rare among Supreme Court justices. This is a his his influence is multifarious, uh, but. In one profound sense, he's lost a battle. Bigness has won. Facebook and Google control two-thirds. Uh, I mean, he could, didn't predict the Internet, but he would look at it and say, why do these two private corporate entities control two-thirds of all search and, 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 and page hosting and, and, and everything else? He would look at, he would look at uh, the combinations of oil companies that were broken up and then pulled back together. He would look at enormous... Globe-spanning corporations, and say, uh, as a Jeffersonian, as a, ag- as a, basically as someone with the agrarianist Jeffersonian outlook, that that he has lost. Is that a fair or unfair unsta- statement?
1: Well, it's true uh, in the ways that you uh, stated it. There is growing recognition of the virtues of uh, the, the curse of bigness today. So, birth, both the Sanders left and the. Tea Party right have criticized the banks and called for them to be broken up. My historian's heart sunk when Bernie Sanders attributed his proposal to break up the banks to Theodore Roosevelt because actually it was Brandeis. Theodore Roosevelt had the opposite proposal. He wanted big regulatory bodies to oversee the big corporations. It was Brandeis and Wilson who wanted to break up the banks and Brandeis would have liked the part of Dodd-Frank. He would have liked the Volcker uh, rule, which at least had uh, capitalization requirements, he would have been sorry that the caps on size didn't pass. But more broadly, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm actually an, I'm a crusader for Brandeis. We're rediscovering the virtues of self-government in small communities. So many of the greatest political success stories now are coming at the state level. I love moderating the Rodell uh, program here, which trains state and local officials who are much more optimistic about government, both R's and D's, than people in Congress are. And even on the internet, it's the enclaves of genuine community, the meaningful chat rooms or the sm- or websites that are truly bounded, that can fulfill a kind of Brandeisian idea. So, as always, You know, I think he would have been anxiously optimistic about the potential for the net, but I wouldn't give up the battle on bigness entirely. Two
2: two more questions on bigness. One, if you can describe briefly the root of his loathing of corporate and governmental bigness. Uh, And the the second one, I'm curious to know what you think, if he were on the court today, how far he would go to regulate this, given that he also subscribed to the view that sometimes the best thing, or often the best thing for the court to do, is nothing at all. I mean, I don't want to paint a picture of Brandeis as this superjudicial activist. He actually feared over-involvement by the judiciary in the lives of Americans. How do you balance that? How do you square that? Two
1: great questions, obviously. The first, where was the root of it? Well, while representing both labor and capital in Boston. He came to see the predations of large chain stores that he thought were destroying small communities. Uh, He became convinced that Morgan was destroying the U.S. economy, not because of his wealth. He said uh, uh, Rockefeller had more wealth, but Morgan had more oligarchic power because of the web of his influence, because his directors served on the boards of the railroads they controlled, and it was possible to travel around the entire world without leaving an instrument controlled by Morgan. So it was really an objection. It was uh, on the basis of political economy and oligarchy rather than efficiency, and that fired his hatred of business bigness. But then he reads Jefferson, and he reads Jefferson later. It's in the summer of uh, 1926 and 1927. And he discovers that Jefferson had proposed an amendment to the Constitution that would have prohibited Congress from setting up monopolies uh, of, uh, or corporations with exclusive privileges. And he channels into this populist anti-corporate tradition that had, was ardent throughout the 19th century, from Jefferson to Jackson to the populist party on up. What would he think of Citizens United? I asked Justice Ginsburg that question. I had the incredible privilege of interviewing Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Kagan for this book. He's their hero, so they were happy to talk about him. And Justice Ginsburg said he would not have been a fan of Citizens United, not at all. (laughs) And I think that was because, as she noted, if Citizens United unites. Several of his uh, obsessions, the necessity of curbing corporate power, the importance of protecting free speech by natural persons in order to promote public deliberation, and the dangers of judicial activism, because he was generally in favor of deference to legislatures. That leads to your second hard question. You know, what, what would he have done with uh, large banks today? Would he have broken them up, or would he have used the courts, essentially, to enforce his vision of the curse of bigness? And here, I think, I came into this book thinking that Brandeis was a defender of judicial restraint across the board. He said that states were laboratories of democracy. He was in favor of judicial efforts. I changed my mind. I think he had a very crusading Jeffersonian view that bigness in business and government was bad, and that's why he was willing to strike down uh, the New Deal. So, uh,
2: you know, what he— bigness outweighed the fear of judicial activism.
1: Exactly, and that's why it would have been really interesting to see his vote in the health care case. Yeah. I don't think he would have been a fan on
2: policy I don't grounds think he would have mandate. liked Obamacare.
1: I don't think he would have liked yeah. the mandate because he preferred state insurance. He set up this great reform of state savings bank insurance in Boston, uh, a reform that still exists. He considered it a perfect reform. He would have rather that it was decentralized and not done at the federal right level. By the way,
2: this would be the perfect Marshall McLuhan moment from Annie Hall if Brandeis would just walk in <laughs> and say, You guys are full of shit. You know, I love you know, Obamacare. You, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't understand my work at all. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's not going to happen, though. We could uh, arrange you know, it. We could try. I, I, Isaacson
1: in a wig or something.
2: Yeah, yeah. I want to go to questions very soon, but I want to go. This is part of the Jewish Lives uh, series, and, and Brandeis, among other things, uh, was America's leading Zionist for for many years, uh, the most important influential Zionist. Uh, he came late to his Jewish identity. He was assimilated family. Uh, I want you to just walk through for a couple of minutes how he came to it, because he didn't come to it in sort of the usual way. Um, and and I want you to talk about the oddity in our understanding of what Supreme Court. Justices should and shouldn't do. The oddity of someone even into his court years being engaged in a somewhat controversial political movement. It, there, it, he, he was much more active in other parts of civic life than we see our monastic justices involved in today. Can you start start with, the, start with where the Zionism came from and what he did? I will do that.
1: Uh, I'll set it up, and then I'm going to ask you the question I really wanted to ask, which is what you I'm not you taking think. questions today. You, you, you need to do it <laughs> in the Brandeisian spirit. What, well, I won't tell you what the question is. You'll find out at yeah. the end of my uh, okay. response to your question. Yeah. So as I said, it's 1910. He represents these Jewish garment workers. He's so impressed by their intellectualism, their empathy. It's the first time he's met Eastern European Jews. His parents came from Prague. They were Central Europeans, and he's just very impressed by them. And then something else happens in the summer of 1910. He meets uh, Jacob de Haas, who's the American secretary of Theodor Herzl, the founder of modern Zionism. And de Haas has come to interview him about regulatory reform and just mentions offhandedly, Louis Dembitz was a noble Jew. Louis Dembitz is Brandeis' revered uncle. His mother's uh, brother... Uh, the only Orthodox Jew in the family, as you said, the Brandeis family, although it doesn't renounce its Judaism, is secular. They're criticized for riding on Yom Kippur. They, the, his mother, Frederica, said, I raised my children to believe in ethics, not religious ritual, because I think that ethics are the most important thing. She is a Frankist. It's an 18th century sect that led to reform Judaism that shuns ritual and prizes ethics. So when Brandeis hears Louis Dembitz was a noble Jew, he, is intrigued and says, de Haas, teach me more. And de Haas says, in addition to being one of the only three Jews to vote for Abraham Lincoln at the Republican Convention of 1860, Dembitz is an ardent Zionist. So Brandeis's passion for facts is kindled. He starts to read. He learns about Zionism. And three years later, he's become the head of the American Zionist movement. And then he applies his incredible organizational power and his uh, passion for facts. Uh, and organizing. The slogan is, men, money, discipline. He raises millions of dollars. But then he has to confront a dilemma. How can he make a case for Zionism that's consistent with Americanism? Previously, he'd been an acolyte of Theodore Roosevelt's spurning of the idea of hyphenated Americanism as a kind of dual loyalty and embrace the idea of the melting pot. But he thinks, and he reads, and he talks to Horace Callan, who's his student, who becomes a great advocate of cultural pluralism. And he comes to believe that by being better Jews, we can become better Americans, because every nationality has to contribute to the orchestra that makes up the American whole. It's an incredibly modern notion of cultural pluralism, very salient for today. So then he decides, far from being inconsistent, Zionism is consistent with Americanism. Jews don't have to move to Palestine. They just have to support the existence of a homeland for the Jews in Palestine, because every nationality needs its own, needs to be a majority in its own country. Me for the small nations, he says. And then he does more than anyone, as if this isn't enough already, transforming privacy and free speech and the corporate uh, uh, law, he is the one person who does more than anything else to convince Woodrow Wilson and the British government to issue the Balfour Declaration that recognizes Palestine uh, as Wilson's advisor in 1916. So this is a high achievement and he continues to be involved in Zionism while he's on the Supreme Court raising questions that, you know, obviously it couldn't be done today. But uh, his original vision of Palestine is democratic, uh, rather um, uh, small-scale communities. He idealizes the kibbutzim as the fulfillment of the 5th century Athenian polis, where citizens work on the land uh, in agrarian ways uh, and majority Jewish. But he believes that the Arabs and Jews are going to have equal civil rights and will work together to create a land of milk and honey, will solve malaria, and will create an agrarian paradise. So I...
2: Very much like Herzl. Like, like, like Herzl, agrarian, like Herzl.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, Jeff, are you, you know... What, what would he make of Israel today? <laughs>
3: you
2: know, I lived on the Kibbutz, there's a Kibbutz in the north of Israel, enoshofet which is the means spring of the judge. And it's named after, that's the yeah. judge in question is, yeah. is, is Brandeis. That gives me actually no insight, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, but that's important. It's, just, it's a trivia. It is. It's a piece of trivia.
0: It's Aspen Ideas to go. If you like today's show, we recommend Thomas Jefferson, an American original. Biographer John Meacham explores Jefferson's complicated legacy. Andy suggests how we might reclaim the Jeffersonian insistence that political leaders be conversant with the philosophical and cultural currents of their time. You can find the show by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes. Now back to today's episode featuring Jeffrey Rosen and Jeff Goldberg. They're discussing Louis Brandeis, the first Jewish justice of the Supreme Court.
2: Brandeis came to Zionism in an unusual way. Most people came to Zionism for more pragmatic reasons, less sort of ideological reasons. Uh, They came to it because they looked at Europe, looked at the future of Europe and said, uh, looked at the current condition of of Jews in in Europe, talking about in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and and guessed forward what was coming and said, we have to get out of here. at the same time, America's putting huge quotas, uh, huge restrictions on immigration from Eastern Europe. Uh, and so a lot of American Jews came to the realization that Zionism was the practical response to current and future persecution. He, he eventually, uh, I'm working my way to an answer, because it, it's, he, he eventually came to that realization as well. Um, he Died before the Holocaust right? He died right before the beginning of, of America's entrance In the war, if I'm not mistaken 1941, although he
1: anticipates it and says the Jews have to get out
2: He, he did anticipate it um, I think he, I mean And you tell me if I'm wrong But I, I, I think he was An one of the things that's interesting about him is that this is a, the first Jewish justice faced anti-Semitism, faced anti-Semitism even inside the Supreme Court. There was a justice you write about, McReynolds, who would literally get out of the... would leave the conference room rather than sit in the same room with a Jew. Uh, I mean, which which is remarkable. I mean, it seemed to have slid off his back. You know, he didn't, he didn't get affected by that. But, but he, so he was aware of anti-Semitism, um, and, and, and I think... Unlike a lot of Jews of that era, and even today, he did not run from his Judaism in order to blend in and assimilate and move forward. He, as he got older, he embraced it, and I think the, the Shoah, the, the Holocaust, would have probably radicalized him um, and made him more of a Jewish nationalist in the traditional mode. What, what would he think today? Uh, I think he would uh, be entirely sympathetic to the project, um, he wouldn't understand it quite well because Israel today, is the majority of the Jews are actually Jews from Arab countries they're not from Europe, this was not in his calculation um, Israel is a more, much more Middle Eastern country than either Brandeis or Herzl would have understood um, on the other hand, I think he would have been extremely proud of Israel's independent judiciary, it's free press, especially in a region where this doesn't happen um, I think uh, again, going back to his vision of of total equality he would I assume be very disappointed in the Arab rejection of a Jewish right to an ancestral a homeland and part of their ancestral homeland at least. Um, But I think he would also be distressed by anti-democratic tendencies inside. You know you know what it is. What what it is 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 the same curse of bigness that he had. He worried about in in uh, America. He might worry about in Israel that Israel got too big inadvertently through the Six Day War through 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 trying to trying to hold. The territories that it, that it captured. And he would worry that, uh, that, that it can't maintain its Jewish and democratic qualities if it doesn't find a way out of the, its entanglement with Arabs who don't want to be with them. Does that sound like a fair... I, I mean, that's, we, we that's, can't ask him, but no, no, it seems like a reasonable guess.
1: That's very helpful, and it solves the problem that I was wondering about. He initially rejected partition because he thought the Jews needed a lot of land, because he's such an agrarian. He's seeing this as a place to cultivate wild rice. That's what he's most excited about, is the cultivation of wild rice. But as Uncle Benjamin's wild rice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes,
1: indeed. Um, yes. Uh, it was Aaron, actually Aaron Aronson's. It uh, was the designer to introduce Aaron Aronson. It doesn't ring, it. It doesn't yeah, ring it, the same. It would really sell, and yeah, sell. the song would be great. But, but So he rejects partition then, but as you suggest, uh, once he comes to see bigness as a threat to democracy and worries about a Jewish state where Jews are not a majority and where a majority can't work its will, then he might have changed his mind. That's very
2: helpful. He would blend these two, yeah. two concerns. Um, we can go on all day, but we're going to take some questions.
3: How would you uh, describe his method of constitutional interpretation, and it, would it be closest to the right, or the center, or the left of the court today?
1: Great question. Uh, for, I think you all heard it. Would his method of constitutional interpretation be closer to the right, the center, or the left, or something else? I, I'll call it the center. In the, in the book, I use a phrase that others have used in another context. He favored a kind of living originalism. He's, you start with the text and that privacy case, he begins with the text of the Fourth Amendment. He says, what were the framers concerned about? They're concerned with the general warrants that sparked the American Revolution. But he doesn't stop there. He's not like Justice Scalia saying, what would the framers have thought about video games, as Justice Alito joked you know, during the video games argument. He would then say, how do we translate the values of the framers into this world of new technology? And that requires not, in a wooden way, saying no physical trespass, no search. Instead, Brandeis says... Because wiretapping can invade so much more privacy than the general warrants, we need to forbid it, even with a warrant. So he's not a loosey-goosey, make-up rights that aren't in the Constitution guy, uh, but he uh, is a living constitutionalist, and he wrote a beautiful speech called "The Living Law," where he says that the law has to adopt to current social. Uh, needs. I think in this sense, in, as in so many senses, he can really unite liberals and conservatives in that he generally favors bipartisan judicial restraint, except when he believes the text of the Constitution or values within it are clearly and unequivocally
2: violated. C- can I, I, I bring the mic around here? But what would he think of the, and, and what is his record on the Second Amendment issues, to the extent that they had Second Amendment controversies?
1: They had no Second Amendment case until 1933. He, did, uh, he was. And he, the, the, the entire court, dismissed the uh, rule that it was a collective right, it was really not much mooted or litigated until the right. 80s or 90s. Right. But there that's some... a good question because now, you know, I think he would take text seriously, but I'm not going to... Right. Go, yeah. I don't go to go oh, there. Go. Yeah. Bob Cargman from Boston. Hi. So, there are two types of progressivism, uh, big progressivism, Teddy Roosevelt, and limited progressivism, uh, which Brandeis' Curse of Bigness uh, represented. So, in today's vocabulary, when you look at the, the sort of Obama approach, which may be the Hillary Clinton approach, to the use of national power, national government, national leadership, versus, say, the Paul Ryan limited government approach, where do you think Brandeis would come down? It's a great question, and it's a, it's a mix. We don't have a Brandeisian or Jeffersonian in national politics. He's, he's as you say, not a big uh, government guy, but he's also not totally against all Regulation, as some Tea Party people are, and champions regulation at the state level. So Elizabeth Warren might come closest to a Brandeisian in, in her crusading economic populism, but I think she's comfortable with forms of federal regulation that he would have mistrusted. One question I ask in this book is, what happened to that crusading tradition? Jefferson, Jackson, uh, Harry Truman, uh, uh, and, and Wilson, and Brandeis, and um, One of the answers might be that in the 1960s, progressives became more interested in uh, social justice issues, in in extending the constitutional guarantees of equalities to minorities and women, and other people who had been previously excluded, which was a heroic enterprise, but basically less interested in the white guys, most of whom were from the South, not all of whom had great records on race, who were economic populists. Um, and I acknowledge in this book that race is Brandeis's Brandeis blind spot. He was not a racist by any means. He was just silent on all the racial cases that came before the court during his tenure. But it's a conspicuous absence for someone who is so crusading about women's suffrage and other questions involving equality. I had a great... I think I can share this publicly, but I had a great... Uh, uh, g- well, let me just have a great conversation here with a distinguished politician, uh, a, g- a governor, who wants to resurrect Brandeis uh, at the state level and try it because he thinks that the constitutionalist uh, alternative to all the economic populism that's manifesting itself in anger on the left and the right, in Trumpism and Sandersism, could be better channeled in this tradition of economic populism that distrust corporate as well as governmental bigness, favors constitutional restraints and cares about liberty. I, I would love it if he could pull it off because I think the country needs it.
2: Could, could a lawyer like Brandeis ever get onto the Supreme Court today?
1: No, you can't get on the Supreme Court if you've said anything before <laughs> you know, being nominated now. So we have some incredibly smart, wonderful justices, but it's just, a, you know, Justice Kagan, Roberts, you're just not allowed to speak before you're nominated. I should say we did. The Supreme Court deep dive... Uh, senator Klobuchar said she thinks there should be a senator, and I think there should be.
2: It would be a good thing. Uh, oh,
1: good. Well, well. Let me uh, ask you. Do you? Th- uh, maybe we're, I was.
2: We're talking about you like you're not here. Do
1: you, Senator? Do you think that a, you know say say you were nominated, which I think would be great, or or Senator Warren?
2: Could, Wait, are you going on the Supreme Court?
1: I we, I nominated her this afternoon. Oh, right? that's
3: great. Congratulations. I would.
1: Could could a that's senator be confirmed to the Supreme Court today?
3: Um. Yes, but I think it would be much harder than it would have been even 10 years ago because of the fact that they've taken votes, right? They've taken votes, they've taken positions, they've said things. Traditionally, the idea was if you're a senator that uh, your colleagues respect um, and they think it would maybe even be politically good to have an open seat, right? Then maybe the other party can take it over or they like you so they think fine, but... Is that trumped now, Do use a euphemism, is that trumped by the fact that you've taken positions? You voted on, on gay marriage, you voted on abortion, you voted on guns, you've taken positions, and then it's harder for the other side, the other party, to say, well, we're okay with her uh, because of this or that. That's the issue. So you might have to have an extraordinary circumstance. But as I said today on the panel, maybe Citizens United wouldn't have been decided that way if you had some people with real-world experience from either party on that court because they, I don't think they ever anticipated that the entire system would be flooded with this money from the outside or maybe they did and then that's worse.
1: It's a, it's a great point and you read this book and you we'll think that someone like the senator should be on the court because the court needs those voices. Um, who was the second Jewish justice and was he appointed in Brandeis's career? He was. It was uh, Benjamin Cardozo. He was appointed by Herbert Hoover. He served for a shorter amount of time and Six years or so? Yeah, uh, he, most of his career was earlier uh, on the Second Circuit in New York, but it was a pretty great uh, record. Uh,
2: but he wasn't involved in Jewish issues in the same way.
1: No, more, he was a Sephardic background, more ambivalent about his uh, right. Judaism. Hi,
2: I'm Don Baker.
1: Um, um, do you think Brandeis would care about how some enterprise got big? In other words, the, 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 if you compared something like Google, which got bigger big by inventing a unique mousetrap versus Comcast
2: or, or <laughs> one of the Morgan Enterprises, would he draw a distinction between the two? That, it's, you know, it's very, by the way, it's very funny. I thought reading this book, I thought he would hate cable companies <laughs> so much. <laughs> like more than more than like more than Cossacks, you know. <laughs> Yeah, 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 you got that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Beautiful. Does it matter how? Uh, You know, he's criticized by mainstream economists. There's a good book by Thomas McGrath for not understanding the efficiencies of scale that can come from organizations that organically grow large. And maybe, you know, McGrath would say that Google is such an example. For Brandeis, it was not primarily an economic uh, objection, but one of political economy and Ontology, to use the fancy word, the limits of human knowledge. Basically, he thinks that the people who run Google may not understand the facts that are necessary fully to uh, make good decisions. So, when one uh, company is charged with adjudicating free speech for the entire world and has to decide whether or not every blog post in Europe violates dignity or not, which was a duty that they shunned. Google didn't want the right to be forgotten to be passed. Brandeis would have feared that it's just too complicated for any person or small group of people to master. He would have uh, shuddered at the idea that these companies have people that they call the deciders. The associate general counsel of Google is woken up in the middle of the night and has to decide which speech to leave up or speech to take down from 142 countries, and it's three in the morning and she doesn't speak Turkish. So I think for all those reasons, maybe Google better than Comcast, but the same objections to uh, the dangers of oligarchic influence in politics and the limits of human knowledge would have Who has
2: more influence over free speech today, an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court or the General Counsel of Facebook?
1: Uh, yesterday, I interviewed the Facebook uh, official, Monica Bickert, who is responsible for making those decisions. And I, I've re- interviewed her here before, And the introduction was, here's the woman who has more power over free speech than any king or president or Supreme Court justice. That raises a challenge for Brandeisians and for all of us because Facebook is not the government. Facebook is not constrained by the First and Fourth Amendment. So WWBD about a world where uh, private corporations have more power over speech than the government does and yet are not constrained by constitutional values. Uh, And what would the solution be? Would it be to break up Google? Would it be a constitutional amendment to regulate Google like a public utility? Uh, I I think at least he would have urged us to entertain the question. Recently, the segregationist views of Woodrow Wilson have been highlighted.
2: What was the personal relationship between President Wilson, who nominated the first Jew for the United States Supreme Court, and Louis Brandeis? Uh,
1: Great question. The personal relations between Wilson and Brandeis were close. Wilson met Brandeis uh, before the campaign of 1912. Brandeis had voted for Teddy Roosevelt, but uh, was blown away by Wilson's uh, intelligence and basically convinced Wilson to embrace the new nationalism and the virtues of smallness. And Wilson becomes convinced that this is the most able lawyer and able statesperson that he's ever met. And it's so it's distressing and important to acknowledge Uh, Wilson's terrible blind spot on race and his uh, uh, lamentable efforts to segregate the federal government, but it is inspiring to read his steadfast defenses of Brandeis at a time when he's being attacked for, uh, you know, as a Jew, Wilson says, I have known him, I have tested him, I have experienced his judgment on these matters. He's so excited when Brandeis is nominated. He signs his commission, says, nothing I've done has given me so much satisfaction. I'm so eager to see the new justice on the great court. So Wilson Uh, like uh, Brandeis has uh, blemishes, but his uh, passionate commitment to this great opponent of bigness is one of his proudest legacies.
2: So everyone, buy this book. Read this book. It's an excellent book. It's relevant. Thank you very much.
0: Jeffrey Rosen is president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. Jeff Goldberg is editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Their conversation happened in June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook, at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.